Hi everyone, welcome to Explore History's podcast on the medieval knight, chivalry, and the modern world. In this podcast, from castles to country houses, we will continue our examination of the changing role of the medieval knight. We will do this, as the title suggests, by examining the evolution of the medieval castle. Like the society in which they were constructed, castles changed over time from impressive defensive structures designed with purely militaristic functions to stately homes. Examining the evolution of the castle, I will argue, can tell us a great deal about changes within society. Indeed, the changing role of the knight clues to the development of chivalry as an ideal and its reinterpretation in the 15th and later centuries. As I will be referring to a number of castles to make my point, I've uploaded a series of pictures onto Instagram. If you'd like to see the places I will be discussing, which would be very helpful, please visit Explore History Limited on Instagram um, at your leisure. So when we talk about castles, we're really going back right to the Norman Conquest in 1066. It's debated about if there were castles before. There's probably one or two small castles in England before 1066, these being built by Normans that were at the Anglo-Saxon court. But really we're talking about the immediate years after 1066 when we talk about the first castles to actually be built in Britain. Now the first castles were very different than what most people think about when you think about the medieval castle. They were known as Mott and Bailey castles. These were representative of a militaristic society. They demonstrate the need for defense and the domination of the landscape, of the domination of a newly conquered and potentially rebellious population. Keep in mind again, with the victory of William the Conqueror in 1066, we have about maybe 5,000 Normans uh, in Britain and probably around 2 million angry Anglo-Saxons. So they had a need for defense. They had a need for protection. And we see this in the Mott and Bailey. Immediately, the way that the Normans established themselves is through the construction of a whole series of castles in Britain. Now, these aren't in many ways what we would associate with a, with a castle. Um, the first ones were put up very quickly, and generally they were made of timber. So, in many ways, they resemble sort of the, the forts of the Wild West. They are put up quickly using timber posts, sharpened tops on them, in a defensive position. And what they would do generally would first of all create a mott, which is a hill, a man-made hill. The Normans were great at using the existing landscape, but they would modify it. So they would dig a moat and the soil that came out of the moat, they would then create a cone-shaped hill. And on top of that hill, they would put um, a keep. Uh, again, initially these are made of timber. Later then they would move to stone construction, like we see at Clifford's Tower in York, uh, Launceston uh, in the southwest, um, and many, many others across Britain. It's estimated that within even 20 or 30 years, certainly by 1100, so just very, you know, a few decades after 1066, there may have been as many as a thousand Mott and Bailey castles throughout Britain. Certainly within a hundred years, we're hitting that number. These are put up quickly. Every time the Normans would spread north and west into a new area, they would establish a Mott and Bailey castle. And then from there, communities would develop around it. They would then build a church. You would have settlers coming in, uh, often from their territories in France and we get small communities developing. But it was all about having a secure location from which they could then dominate the countryside. 
Now this was very important for the Normans in this early stage and we see again widespread expansion of the Motton Bailey throughout Britain and later on into Ireland, Wales and Scotland. However, once the Normans had established themselves, we see the castle begins to evolve. So it goes from timber structures at Mott and Bailey's to structures made out of stone. We see them grow in size and complexity. And maybe a good example of this is Dover Castle, which many people are familiar with. If you're coming from France into England, it's one of the first places that you see. And that is why it was built there. It was the first castle that was really... Um, one of the first castles that was established by William the Conqueror as he moved from Battle, uh, the site of the Battle of Hastings, up to uh, Canterbury and into London um, after his great victory. And he established a traditional, uh, for the period, stone square um, tower, which is the main tower at uh, Dover Castle, and a similar one, which is the Tower of London. These were great structures at the time and incredibly different for the British landscape. If you can imagine, you're Anglo-Saxon, you've never seen a castle, and all of a sudden you get these massive stone structures. And places like Dover and the Tower of London go beyond just a simple defensive structure. They were also very much a symbol of William the Conqueror's domination. And so they're very tall. He actually brought stone, white limestone, from his... Um, estates in Caen in Normandy and on a full moon you can imagine that these would just pretty much glow in the landscape. Anyone coming into that area would know that this person was powerful and that they dominated the region. That's what they were all about. But when you look at Dover what we see is layer upon layer through the centuries. It develops during the 12th century and we start to see influences coming from abroad. So we get more curtain walls on the outside. We see more impressive gates, like the Constable's Gate, huge big structures. And again, this really speaks not only the power of the Normans and the later English kings, but also the importance of a place like Dover, which is an administrative center. It is a place where kings of England would stop when they were going off to their territories in France. And so you needed a good secure area. And of course, it's dominating the all-important harbor, the area of crossing, which to this day is the uh, busiest port in all of Europe. And so a very important place, and the castle really reflects that. We see castles then develop even further when we get into you know, later years, and we see these influences coming from abroad. And perhaps the best place to see this development is in North Wales, with the castles built by Edward I. Here we see a new phase representative of the dominance and authority of a very strong king, Edward I. Society and kingship had changed by the late 13th century. And this is reflected in the castles that Edward built. In Carnarvon Castle, we see influences from the Crusades, things that he picked up in his travels in the Middle East, and from the continent. But more importantly, we see Edward making a strong statement of authority over the land. He had to do this because the Welsh were incredibly difficult to conquer. They didn't like the idea of being dominated by the English. They fought for hundreds of years. And eventually, in the late 1200s, Edward was able to finally bring them under control to dominate Wales. And he did this through these massive castles like Carnarvon and Conwy and others. A whole string of castles, and they're all massive in size. 
Edwards Wells castles are, quote, judged to be the apogee of military architecture in the late 13th century. Imposing and stylish, they represent all that was required in a fortified castle at that time. A visible, formidable presence that dominated its surroundings. Defensive strength in walls, mural towers, and gatehouses equipped with multiple portcullises and murder holes, and domestic apartments suited to the administrative and judicial duties that the constable would dispense in peacetime. When we move into the late 14th and 15th centuries, the period of the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses, we again see new developments in castle construction, which reflect developments within society, and more specifically, the changing role of the nobility. It is evident that during the 14th and 15th century, England's nobility, despite all the warfare, were becoming increasingly interested in a more comfortable existence, like that of a country gentleman. Many aristocrats had several residences, and increasingly they felt the need to keep a house in London. When they moved from house to house, their entire households moved with them, including much of the furniture, their plate, and the fittings for their chapel. However, in the late Middle Ages, there was also a tendency for the upper classes to move around less. For example, Earl Gilbert of Clare moved on average every two weeks in the early 14th century, but later in the 14th, just two to three times a year. It was becoming increasingly common for the upper class to have a fixed residence and therefore spend more time there with family and guests. Now, as they were spending more time in one place, they then desired their houses to be more comfortable. The result was that many families began spending money to make the, quote, bleak, ill-lit castles of their ancestors comfortable by the addition of halls, withdrawing rooms and ranges of private apartments with glazed and traceried windows and chimneyed hearths. With these changes, we also begin to see a move away from a communal style of living that was predominant feature of earlier times. Households could also vary greatly in size, with a, a well-to-do squire or knight having perhaps a dozen servants. A great lord, however, could have a great deal more. For example, Margaret, Duchess of Clarence, went traveling to Normandy in 1419 and took with her 19 knights, 25 esquires, these were young noblemen training for knighthood, 45 yeomen, servants in the noble household, 19 grooms, 13 pages, 11 baggage carriers, 10 priests, and 4 choristers, singers in her choir. Some estimates suggest that a duke's household could have as many as 240 people, an earl's 200. A great magnate would be served by, quote, well-born men, as it was seen as an honor to serve them and would provide opportunities. With so many people in a household and great emphasis on entertaining and hospitality, enormous amounts of money were spent on provisions. In the early 16th century, the Earl of Northumberland's household consumed 16,932 bushels of wheat, 27,594 gallons of ale, 1,646 gallons of wine, 20,800 pounds of currants, 124 beef cattle, 667 sheep, 14,000 herrings, and a great deal more. So these amounts are so great in part because the great men were expected to be generous. They were expected to give alms to the poor. They were to support the church, give gifts to their peers, and provide hospitality to all. Spending was a social obligation. And we see this in the change in the castles in which great men lived. 
And one of the great examples that we have, certainly in the southeast of England, is Bodium Castle, always described as one of England's fairy tale castles. It was both a fortress and a residence of a prominent lord, Sir Edward Dallengrig, a Sussex knight. He served in the Hundred Years' War and may have been at the Battle of Agincourt with Henry V. He acquired the manor of Bodium through marriage to Elizabeth Wardot, an heiress to the manor. With this inheritance and plunder from France, he made himself a very rich man. He was also a knight of some standing and involved in the affairs of the government. His problem was that his manor in the southeast corner of England was highly vulnerable to French raids. In the late 14th century, the River Rother, which ran right past his castle, was a navigable estuary. This was at a time when the English had lost control of the English Channel. And so that part of England was very vulnerable to French attack. In 1377, the town of Rye was looted and set fire to by French invaders. The church was heavily damaged by fire and the bells were carried off to France. But the next year, the men of Rye and Winchelsea sailed to Normandy, burned two towns and retrieved the bells. The point is that Sir Edward's manor of Bodium was just a little bit further north and highly vulnerable. So Sir Edward decided to build a castle that would def both defend his property, provide a residence befitting a knight of his wealth and standing. In October of 1385, he obtained a royal license to crenellate or fortify his manor. By the time the castle was completed in 1388, the French threat had ended. The English had regained control of the channel. So Bodium Castle was never attacked, although it was twice captured without resistance, but this was by other English. As a fortress, the castle was designed in the most up-to-date fashion. The first line of defense was a wide moat, which is over three acres, making it one of the larger moats in all of England. This would keep attackers from bringing their siege machines too close, keep them from trying to undermine the walls. So, hard to dig a tunnel and collapse a section of wall when you've got water right up to it. A wooden bridge, which now runs directly into the castle, actually ran at a right angle to the castle. And this was so that any attacker would have their exposed, carrying their shields in their left hand, would have their exposed right side um, towards the castle. They'd be vulnerable to attacks by arrow. It had a removable bridge. Then it had a barbican that you would have to get through. Then another removable bridge. Then a portcullis. And it had the full panoply of medieval defenses. Machicolations across the top of there, of the castle. Three pairs of heavy doors three portcullises, and murder holes. If you got inside past the first door, there was holes in the ceiling that people could throw all sorts of things from human excrement to boiling oil, shoot arrows, all sorts of things. Just whatever they could do to make your life miserable. But more impressive is the interior. And this is the non-defensive qualities of the castle. Inside the castle had all the amenities necessary for someone of Sir Edward's social standing. Like most castles, it included a great hall, a chapel, kitchens, a great chamber, lodgings for the lord, his family, and staff. You would have had probably about a hundred people living at Bodium at this time. But unlike many earlier castles, comfort was viewed as essential. The builders were instructed to construct kitchen fireplaces large enough to cook an entire oxen. There are at least 30 fireplaces in the castle for heat and no less than 35 toilets. Now, this meant, of course, that 
all the waste is still going outside into the moat, which is kind of one of the defenses. You're not going to swim across it because of that. It would have stunk terribly. But it meant comfort. It meant that you could be in your own accommodations and be using the toilet and not having to walk uh, a great distance or outside the castle. There were several large windows, including a particularly large window on the east side, which illuminated the Lord's chambers. And this tells you a lot about his desire to um, live a certain lifestyle. Windows are great for light, but they're not you know, much in the way of defense against a cannonball. So if, in fact, if you look closely at Bodium Castle, you soon realize that while defense was important, as much attention was put into other considerations. The moat could easily be drained by breaking through the pond wall. The large window in large chambers was certainly not of good defensive quality. In truth, the castle was designed as a symbol of lordship and power. It presented a good front, while clearly illustrating the status and wealth of the lord who owned it. Further evidence of this is found above the entrance to the main gate, where Sir Edward's shields and crests were carved in stone, telling all who entered the family which occupied it. We see this in one other castle which I would mention. So one other castle I would mention which is critical to understand this development is Hurstmonceux Castle. It's also a place where I lived for 16 years, so I got to know it very well. When it was constructed in 1441, it was the largest private home in all of England. The only other, um, other places like it that were larger were owned by the royal family. So this is a massive structure. It's over two, 200 feet long, um, and it's made of brick. Very unusual. And when you look at it, again, you see a real emphasis on comfort. Vast fireplaces, a huge kitchen area. And one of the, the most important things that you see with Hirschmonsu is that it's the first castle that I'm aware of that had internal plumbing. All of the toilets in it went down into tunnels underneath the castle, some of which um, are still in existence, and they drain out underneath the moat and away. This would have been a huge comfort. When you also look at the castle, you see lots of windows, far more than you see in earlier castles. It does have a moat, it did have a drawbridge. It's a huge structure, very defensive, but it's much more about protecting the family from other English families they might be squabbling with than it is from an attack by the French or somebody else outside of Britain. This is about status. It's all about comfort, and it's about entertaining. It's about showing people the wealth and power that you have, that you'd made it. It's built by someone, by Roger Fiennes, someone who was at Agincourt. He fought with Henry V at Agincourt and enriched himself because of that. Treasure to the household under Henry VI. So he'd done really well for himself. And he's displaying that wealth in Hurstmonceau Castle. And this is something that we see repeated throughout this period in the late 1400s and into the 1500s, into the Tudor period that the money is being spent on these grand homes. They still needed um, you know, some defensive considerations, primarily because with the Wars of the Roses and so on, there is a great need for defense because the nobility are squabbling with each other. But the focus was on style. It was on comfort. This had become a primary consideration. So I would argue that this is really important to understanding the, the development of a medieval knight which we are considering. These individuals, which started out as purely militaristic, are very much is reflected in the places they lived. 
The early knights that, that lived in Mott and Bailey castles were sleeping on straw on the floor. The toilets they used were outside the building or they were using a chamber pot. It was not comfortable, very small fireplaces, and they were few and far between. So hard to stay warm, hard to stay comfortable. These are more like military forts where the men just pile in, sleep on the floor, and drink and carouse and carry on. Very rough places. When you get to this later period in the 14th and 15th century, we see a much greater emphasis on comfort, on style, and these men are living in these places with their families quite often. And so it's the Lord and the lady and the children and their extended household and extended family, and they need comfort. And so it is a quite different mentality. And this is the whole point. And we see the medieval knight changing from a purely militaristic, um, you know, a soldier, something that's purely militaristic, to something now much more attuned to a country gentleman. Somebody that has made it, wants to have more of the creature comforts. Let the young ones do the fighting. They want to enjoy life and have it a bit more of style and reflect that status that they had acquired through the buildings that they lived in. Well, that concludes this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you're interested, go on to Instagram, uh, Explore History Limited, and you can see some of the pictures of the castles, which I have been talking about. I uh, give you a much more visual representation of some of the things that um, we've been discussing. And um, you can also follow us on Facebook and um, keep in touch. Any questions, I'm happy to get emails. If you go on to the Explore History website, um, you can send me an email and um, we'll have more to come very soon.